from the moon, planet Earth is a beautiful sphere of blues, greens and swirling white clouds. It is a seemingly peaceful composition that holds within it everything. Quite literally everything. All the people, places and stories of our existence. How can we decipher all those experiences? All those elements that distinguish us as human beings? And how do we interpret the greatness of the natural world, the effects of climate change, and above all, how everything is interconnected? We really do need to have a long, hard look in the mirror. Otherwise, we are not going to see humanity as we know it two or three generations from now. So HIV has had so far the largest impact on humankind in recent times. Uh, it has killed 33 million people since the early 80s. And today, 38 million people live with HIV. And only two patients have been cured. Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, will be hosting its 23rd international exhibition next year in 2022. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, and so this podcast will attempt to tackle some of these vast questions, seeking perspectives rather than answers, our metaphorical vantage point, giving us some distance and hopefully some clarity all from the moon. It's important that we think of this desire for a return to normal as a denial of death, in a way, a refusal to accept human vulnerability and finitude. As the series has progressed, we have observed the world, the moon and even space beyond that from some extraordinarily different perspectives on the From the Moon podcast. From that serene blue and green planet that we observed in the first episode to witnessing a world of social, political, cultural and environmental divisions. Although we have often ventured into the realms of thought and understanding, this, episode six, is going to be the most philosophical yet. Today, we are going to, in part, imagine a world without humans. The COVID-19 pandemic is without a doubt the pretext for this seemingly fatalistic line of thought. But as we'll soon find out, there is a long tradition of inquiring about the end of everything that spans many disciplines. From the perspective of astrophysics, we'll expand the conversation to look at the final stages of the universe, far, far beyond the realms of our own humanity. And we'll also explore the relationships between the natural and man-made worlds, how they are increasingly converging and what threat that continues to pose. But to start, we'll hear from the first of two philosophers on the programme. Dr. Ben Ware is the co-director of the Centre for Philosophy and the Visual Arts at King's College London. He began by giving us something of an introduction to the philosophy of human extinction. Ben Ware, thank you for joining us on this episode of From the Moon. In this episode, we're really trying to examine the concept of our own extinction as a species. I wanted to ask you, rather than look at that notion of extinction of the species, what does it mean that we're even kind of discussing it? What's the philosophy behind that? It's clear that COVID-19 and the pandemic is making us question our own existence. 
but can you put it in in context for us? Um, I think, well, I mean, certainly to begin with philosophy, um, the first thing to say, perhaps just in terms of background, is that there is a a strand of philosophical thinking that has always been both haunted and fascinated by the idea of extinction. So in 1794, I think it is, uh, towards the end of his life, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant writes an essay called The End of All Things, where he describes the idea of a final end as both horrifying and attractive, frighteningly sublime, as I think he says. And he then goes on to say that you know, thinking about this apocalyptic final end can help us arrive at a, a kind of moral sense of the world and that we need the idea of the final end in order for our lives to have any kind of meaning or narrative coherence. We then jump forward, you know, I guess, I guess a, you know, a century after Kant, and we find an extinction fable at the beginning of Nietzsche's famous essay on truth and lies in an extra moral sense. And Nietzsche seems to quite like the idea of extinction. He talks about this star, the earth, upon which clever beasts, i.e. human beings, invented knowing. And then nature, he says, takes a few breaths and the earth cooled and all the beasts had to die. And at the end, Nietzsche says, nothing will have happened. The point being that nothing that we do now makes any difference to anything whatsoever, because one day everything will just simply cease, cease to exist, cease to be. The city of Hiroshima lies prostrate after the withering blast which wiped out 53,000 of its population. Four square miles of buildings levelled by the first of two small bombs that decided the fate of Japan. And then in the 20th century, you know, we find figures like Wittgenstein flirting with the idea of, of a nuclear apocalypse, Heidegger pondering the, um, the breakout of a third world war that might bring about the complete annihilation of humanity and the destruction of the earth. And, you know, Jean-Francois Lyotard echoing Nietzsche talking about the extinction of the sun and a solar apocalypse. And so what we have here then, I think, in, in the realm of philosophy specifically, is this fascination with the idea of the end. Or to put it in more psychoanalytic terms, a kind of repetition compulsion where the end of thought is endlessly reimagined alongside or as part of the end of the world. Um, outside philosophy, and listeners may be perhaps more aware of this tradition, I mean, you know, there, there's a whole tradition of revolutionary eschatology or religious apocalypticism dating back to the Middle Ages and one can trace a line from this kind of, you know, radical religious thought about the end through to figures like Guy Debord and the Situationists 
And then from Debord through to the kind of blank apocalypticism of punk and to Johnny Rotten singing about no future. So we've got um, all these kind of different threads, I guess, all these different lines of thought inside and outside philosophy that obviously in kind of markedly different ways are all concerned with extinction or the end of the world. And I think one of the ways of drawing these threads together would be to say quite simply, in periods of crisis, when the existing social order seems to be at the point of collapse, thinking about extinction or the end always becomes more accelerated or more pronounced. Fantasies about the end of the world are, of course, I think, always kind of ambiguous in the sense that they register, you know, anxieties about the present state of things, They can often be quite misanthropic, often unconsciously attached to the very things that they oppose. But they can also register hopes for some kind of transformed future. Um, What we might call, you know, the desire for a more livable collectivity after the end of modernity and after the end of capitalism. And I think this kind of brings us to our our kind of present moment of an, or our kind of current situation in a way. Well, that's a fantastic run through of a very big question. And you brought us right up to speed. Fascinating rendition there. Thank you. You mentioned there, I think it was Nietzsche you quoted or, or, or referenced in that his philosophy pointed to the fact that nothing that we do on earth really matters. It's kind of meaningless. That leads me to my next question, the notion of the Anthropocene, something that goes against that it it, it basically uh, implies that everything that we do on planet earth has a matters it has an impact on the nature of the planet it's also a term that i think a lot of philosophers seem to have a distaste for from my understanding It's, it's problematic can you explain to me first of all your take on the anthropocene from a philosophical standpoint and also whether you think that the pandemic will result in a kind of post-Anthropocene way of thinking. Yeah, I, I, it may be worth just reminding listeners perhaps very briefly what we mean by the term Anthropocene. Um, and I guess, you know, to, to put it very simply, um, Anthropocene refers to an epoch in which the human species or the, the, the Anthropos is said to have ascended to some kind of biospheric supremacy, becoming a geological force in its own right. Um, My view, um, and this is a view, as you've already hinted at, is is a view that's shared by a number of other philosophers and, you know, a number of other people working in, you know, ecological kind of theory and ecological politics at the moment. Um, 
My problem with that term primarily is that I think it serves to reinforce a particular worldview. So one in which kind of mastery and impotence catastrophically collide. So on the one hand, you have Anthropocenic man, man in inverted commas, um, who devastates the earth. And then on the other hand, the human of the Anthropocene who is unable to act historically to change anything at all. So in this situation, one is simply stuck in this new geological epoch in which our only hope is to act as enlightened planetary managers using our new technological powers to create a kind of a good Anthropocene, essentially a kind of green Prometheanism. Um, I think a more useful term is the one proposed by the theorist Jason Moore, which is the term Capitalocene, or the age or epoch of capital, which at least has the virtue, I think, of naming the actual culprit. Um, and locating climate change and ecological destruction, not in species being, but in the political and economic organisation of modern capitalism itself, stretched out, I think, over centuries, we might say, of colonialism and neocolonialism, industrialization, and now late capitalist globalisation. Um, so I don't see the Anthropocene as a particularly useful term. In fact, it's what I'd call a kind of junk concept. But I do think that it demonstrates the extent to which ecological thought and ecological politics now has to play out up to a point as a kind of fight over words. So, for example... Um, Another term favoured by a number of people involved with Extinction Rebellion, for example, is this term deep adaptation, um, a term denoting a new kind of survivalist discourse, I guess, um, inviting ethical and spiritual reflection on our way of life in the face of inevitable social collapse. And I, you know, again, I take this as an example of a certain kind of melancholy sort of liberalism. And then, of course, you know, we have all this kind of, you know, what I would call kind of neoliberal empty rhetoric around sustainability um, and ideas like that, which, which seems to me to be very much a, a kind of contradiction in terms. I mean, what the present reality of extinction surely demonstrates is that there is no such thing as sustainable capitalism. Um, so going back to your question about, you know, a, a post-Anthropocene future then, I think what's required is a kind of discursive shift, or to put it in terms from Wittgenstein, to say that we've been held captive by this picture of the Anthropocene, and now we need to kind of remove these distorting glasses, which have, have been the ones through which we, we, you know, we've been partially kind of viewing the present crisis and to say that we perhaps need new words and new concepts to make better sense of the current situation. That was Dr Ben Ware, who is the co-director of the Centre for Philosophy and Visual Arts at King's College London. 
We'll hear more from him at the end of the show. But focusing in on that complex relationship between humans and the natural world, something that has loosely, perhaps too loosely, been coined anthropocentrism, let's move on to the incursion, the crossover of the human world into the natural one. The current pandemic is largely the result of one such incursion, and Tom Hughes, who is working in Southeast Asia, tells us about the origins of diseases such as COVID-19 and where the world's leaders and policymakers have been going so wrong. My name is Tom Hughes. Um, I am the country coordinator for EcoHealth Alliance in Malaysia, and I am the director of conservation medicine. Um, I've been working for EcoHealth Alliance in Malaysia uh, for over 15 years now, um, and I established conservation medicine back in 2014 uh, to, to help with the work that we do uh, in Malaysia for EcoHealth Alliance uh, and also other work that we do in the region with other partners. Maybe could, you, could we start by looking at land use, how we inhabit the land of the planet? How has that development and, and habitation affected the emergence of diseases? Sure, sure. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's an important question. So, I mean, in, in the kind of last hundred years, um, we've seen on average two new diseases jump from animals to humans every year. Uh, a lot of those in the past have gone unnoticed, but then others like Ebola, HIV, SARS, Nipah, and now COVID-19 obviously have huge impacts. Um, Ebola, HIV, Zika, um, which kind of people are aware of on an international scale, and, and more locally here in Malaysia, Nipah virus, are all good examples of viruses that spilled over into human beings as a direct result of land use change. So um, HIV, that spilled over into bushmeat hunters uh, in uh, East Africa, you know, sometime about 60 years ago. Um, and those were hunters who were hunting chimpanzees. When butchering those animals, uh, they came into contact uh, with body fluids, with urine, with feces, with blood from those chimpanzees. And the HIV virus spilled over into those hunters uh, and then very quickly spread around the world. And there are people with HIV uh, in every country on Earth. Um, similarly, with, with, with um, uh, Ebola, uh, again, it was you know, people going into the forest, uh, interacting with wildlife uh, in a way they, they wouldn't normally, either, either through hunting or going into caves and things, allows the virus to spill over into human populations and spread. Um, and with, again, with, with, with COVID-19, you know, yes, it's maybe not directly related to land use change in the same kind of way as, as HIV and, and Ebola are. But it is to do with human activity uh, and interaction with wildlife that, that wouldn't normally be happening. And, and our best guess right now is that COVID-19 spilled over from bats either directly into people or into another uh, wildlife animal, which then amplified the virus and passed it on to humans. We're not entirely sure where that happened yet. That may have happened in the market in Wuhan, which there's been a lot of speculation about, or it may have happened somewhere else before uh, the animals or the humans that were infected reached the market. But it is all a result of, of our activities and our interactions with these animals. These animals have carried these viruses in many cases for tens of thousands of years, but it is us altering the environment that leads to these viruses spilling over. Um, we tend to see most of this in the tropics, where we have 
large numbers of people, growing populations, need for agricultural expansion to grow more food, need to expand urban areas, build new roads. Uh, we see increasing extractive industries, uh, whether, you know, all kinds of mining and things like that. All of these things are altering the environment. They are allowing increased access into previously pristine areas, and they are allowing for uh, increased contact and conflict between human beings and wildlife. And that really is what is driving uh, disease emergence. And obviously, with the human population rapidly expanding, as it has done in the last 50 years, all of these um, problems and challenges, which are not new, but they are now being amplified. So we are seeing a much greater um, rate of disease spillover. And if you just think back over the last 20 years, we, we've had you know, SARS, then MERS, and now COVID-19. That's three different coronaviruses that have all spilled over from wildlife into people um, and have had quite major impacts uh, on, the, on the global economy uh, and also on human health. Um, I just want to talk about that rapid increase. So if we look back, um, you mentioned hunters and so on in Africa, leading to the emergence of the HIV AIDS virus. But has there been a kind of rapid increase is the kind of incursion in terms of in the into environments that bit more kind of aggressive now is is it the scale of the land use the scale of the incursion that is really driving this uh, rapid increase yes yes I, th- I think it is um so we obviously as our population grows there is increasing demand for food so we need to grow more food but also as economies develop and as countries develop and people have more income then there is a greater demand for things like chicken and beef and this fuels uh, habitat destruction in the tropics i mean right now we are we are seeing deforestation at an unprecedented rate in the amazon and a lot of that is being driven by livestock production whether it's clearing land to rear cattle Um, and then sell that beef all around the world, or whether it's clearing that land to plant soybeans, which are then used to feed um, livestock like chickens in the US and the UK, so people can enjoy their KFC and things like that. So there is this, there there has been a, a real kind of shift as the world has become more connected and it's become easier for us to move products around the world and we really have become this kind of uh, multinational society where it's very easy to produce something in one country and sell it to a market in another. While there's all kinds of benefits from that, there are also all kinds of negative impacts which really aren't being considered um, by the consumers or by the companies who are making, uh, in many cases, you know, large amounts of profits out of these activities. Um, I want to talk about uh, what we might call a, a worst case scenario or put it this way. If I'd spoken to you this time last year, what would you have said was the worst case scenario? And would that have been something like what's happened, COVID-19 and the pandemic? Yeah, um, I mean, COVID-19 and the spillover of, of SARS-CoV-2 is obviously it's had a huge impact on the planet, on the global economy. Yes, millions of people have become infected. And I think we're somewhere around the 1.6 million people have sadly lost their lives as a result of this. Um, 
if you had spoken to me a year ago, yeah, I think I would have said one of my big fears was something like a coronavirus spilling over. But there are certainly other things, an influenza virus, something like the Spanish flu that we saw at the end of the First World War. And were you, that, con- that, were you complete, sorry to interrupt on, but were you, you and your colleagues completely conscious of exactly what we've been going through? Is that what you kind of do every day? Yeah, we do. I mean, I, I think there is, recently I saw um, a 60-minute programme that, that had footage of, of Dr Peter Dashat, the president of EcoHealth Alliance, being interviewed 14, 15 years ago when we were doing Nipah virus um, surveillance work here in, in, in Malaysia on Tiamen Island, where the, the film South Pacific is filmed. Um, and he, he was asked the same question, and, and he said, yeah, my, my big fear is, is something like a SARS virus spilling over. And I've certainly answered questions uh, asked by, by media and others um, in the last 10 years and, and said similar things. I think one of the things that I and many of my colleagues have found very difficult watching COVID-19 is, yes, it has been very bad, but it, wasn't, it, it has been made worse than it should have been by the way governments um, and people have responded to it. The, the Western governments were very slow to react. Once we knew this thing was coming and we knew it was moving out of China into countries like Malaysia and Singapore and Thailand, where we were some of the first countries outside of China to see cases, the US, the UK, Europe, they really just sat there and watched COVID coming to them. They could have done a lot in those early months that, yes, would have had an economic impact, yes, would have put restrictions on people's liberties to some extent, but it would have prevented the mess that we are now in. And I think that's one of the things that, that myself and, and my colleagues find frustrating. This, this is something we have been talking about really for, for over a decade. Policymakers have been supporting the kind of work that we do, but people haven't really been listening to the warnings that we've been giving. Can we talk about worst case scenario times infinity? I mean, we, we feel like we're going through this this terrible situation now, but in your opinion, what are, what are the dangers around the corner? It's not like there's a capacity um, for disaster, as, as, as we know, looking at a kind of natural disasters, you know, things can keep getting worse. What do you think is the kind of worst case scenario uh, looking forward? Yeah, um, so I mean, for me, it would be something like a highly pathogenic influenza, which will be far easier for it to be spread between person to person. So you will see much, much more rapid spread in infection. Um, yeah, one of the things that, that has made control of COVID quite hard is that many people are asymptomatic, but also many people are asymptomatic. Imagine if we were dealing with something where everybody who was infected ended up needing to be hospitalised. Well, we would not be talking about 1.6 million deaths. We would be talking about tens or hundreds of millions of deaths, um, as we saw with the Spanish flu. I think for for the general public who who you know don't do the kind of work that I do, there is this feeling that oh, okay, COVID nineteen is is this thing that that's just happened, and, and we now need to start thinking about this. But but it's not COVID nineteen as as I said earlier. Is this is the third coronavirus to spill over in the kind of last. 10, 15 years, start, starting with SARS back in 2000, um, that's had you know, global impact, cross-borders, impacted travel, impacted public health, impacting the global economy. 
we don't know when the next virus could spill over. It could be happening right now as you and I are talking. There could be someone in a cave somewhere harvesting guano. There could be someone somewhere uh, chopping up a, a monkey to feed their family. Or there could be somebody somewhere you know, building a road into a new bit of forest um, and getting bitten by a mosquito or a tick carrying some new virus or pathogen that we've not yet seen. So we really need to start to think about how we are living on this planet and the impact that we are having on it. Or these things will keep happening and they will keep happening with more frequency. Uh, and it's only a matter of time before something spills over where even the best controls will, will, will make it, will, 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 will find it very, very hard to keep the lid uh, on that and, and not see, you know, millions and millions of people dying. Um, and I think, you know, it, we, we really do need to have a long, hard look in the mirror. Otherwise, we are not going to see, you know, humanity as we know it two or three generations from now. That was Tom Hughes there, who works for the Eco Health Alliance in Malaysia and is the director of conservation medicine. Tom talking of hundreds of millions of deaths from a newly endemic disease that might emerge on the world stage startlingly brings us up to speed in terms of imagining the farewell humanity theme of our show. Next up, and staying within the interdisciplinary nature of From the Moon, we have a guest from the cultural sphere. Portuguese theatre director, playwright and actor Tiago Rodriguez was generous enough to brainstorm some ideas with us about how he might realise an end-of-the-world theme, theatrically and creatively speaking. My name is Tiago Rodrigues. I'm a Portuguese uh, playwright, um, uh, director uh, and an actor. Um, I've been working in theatre for um, about 20 years and uh, since five years ago I'm directing uh, the National Theatre in Lisbon. So for this episode, we're, we're looking at the uh, this kind of utopia or dystopia, depending how, how you look at it, the demise of, of the human race or, or on planet Earth. And that's kind of a really philosophical question. But we haven't had much in terms of a kind of creative, artistic response to that. So I wanted to ask you how you might tackle that as a theme although you have told me that you you tend not to have kind of like the theme predetermined you work around actors and this meeting that is so important so that might be a bit difficult for you to answer but in a way it, it's quite a relevant theme um this kind of absence of people we're just going through a, a pandemic which i'm you're all too aware of dealing with with theatres and, and empty seats so what comes to mind when I'm, I'm throwing this theme to you you know no, there's no people left immediately i have to think of uh i think one of the most uh accurate things i i, I read uh about what we're going through right now um but also in 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 a broader reflection about where we are as a species um, French philosopher Bruno Latour, he said something which is quite theatrical in the way he frames it, which is we're going, we're living now the, the sort of dress rehearsal, the general rehearsal of the future uh, crisis, which will be global, either for, for uh, 
provoked by climate change, either uh, other pandemics, but we, we, we arrived this moment as a, as a species where mobility and, and, um, and globalization and the interconnection between geographies and, and, uh, and, and countries and people and continents makes it that uh, um, we're, we're living this sort of um, global crisis that makes tabula rasa, of, of all of us. So uh, I, I never before I connected with my Norwegian or Congolese friends in our daily life as now, because we all know what we're uh, talking about. Some of us are more privileged and comfortable, and some of us are in a more uncomfortable and risky situation. But we can all connect to this one same main problem. Uh, and this idea of a dress rehearsal uh, convokes not only the theatrical uh, uh, metaphor, but also this idea of preparation for what's to come. Uh, I, I, of course, from a theatrical creative point of view, uh, dealing with, with the demise of, of, of the human species, um, uh, you, 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 you're immediately in a, in, a, in a sort of crossroads. Do you want to go for the dystopic option where where you um where you sort of uh um promise uh this this sort of uh prophecy you propose a, a prophecy to the audience of of uh, the worst scenario that's yet to come um and 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 you and you and you talk about the last human uh roaming the earth or 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 a planet where there's no human presence anymore and what's happening to that presence uh maybe very positive things um and and do you frame it as a dystopic uh prophecy or do you frame it as uh, a story of of possible change uh, or do you do you, do you, you know do you give uh, um, roads to change? And I th I think that either explicitly or implicitly, many theater makers um, around the globe are are dealing with the issue, um, even if if they're not saying it in a very clear framing it in a very clear situation. But I also I think not only in the subjects of works but also in the way of operating. More and more I see artists, and myself included, worrying about uh, the carbon footprint of how to produce a play, how to create a show, how to travel with, with a show. Um, there's a lot of debate and action starts to happen about that. And I think inevitably that will be present also in the aesthetics. Um, I, I think we, we, will, we will be very invested in finding uh, uh, challenging aesthetics that allow this politics of uh, there's no planet B to be uh, to be uh, put into place in in theater making. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I, I would have a, an immediate proposal to what would be my show on the demise of, of, of the human species and the end of civilization uh, as we know it and um, the catastrophe. Um, I think it's been present in a few of my uh, performances somehow, uh, even if in a small scale. Uh, one of my pieces, Sopro, Imaginis, a theater, also a small prophecy at my scale, a theater that's closed and that's visited by the prompter uh, of that theater, uh, remembering all the pieces 
that she prompted uh, uh, in this old theater and sort of evoking the ghosts of, of past actors and past performances. So in, in somehow that's a theatrical version of this idea of extinction and, and how to deal with extinction. And I think extinction will always be connected, at least in my case, with memory. Uh, with what was before, what led us here, but also what we could avoid it, what we could have changed. So I, I think, for instance, the idea of this dystopic moment where the last human uh, uh, reads an encyclopedia to understand what went wrong, I, I, I would find it a, a nice starting point for a show, but one, once again, I would assemble a team and it would be our debate about the issue. And, and our research about the issue that will would produce actually an idea for for a performance. But I, I think this you know um, this woman uh, looking for a place where there's an encyclopedia or or, or something like that, uh, acknowledging she's probably the last uh, human being on Earth and dedicating her last uh, months or years alone on Earth to trying to understand what went wrong. That, that could be a, a nice starting point also for a small show where, where the aesthetics could be uh, agreeing with some, uh, some pol ecological politics in the way of, of producing a show. Maybe we would have to find a different actress in each place to, to learn the show instead of making the show travel. And, um, and just work with translation and, and, and working online from a distance so that we wouldn't have to travel with this show. Um, I don't know. I, I, there's plenty of ideas that could pop up, but I'm, I'm just brainstorming. Tiago Rodriguez, um, I have to stop you because I feel also you might be giving too many ideas to our listeners. Someone might end up doing the play that you thought of. So it's been wonderful to hear your, your thoughts. And I think it will be really nice to end by playing some of uh, Sotru, the play you mentioned there. So we'll hear some of that now. Trabalho em teatro desde 14 de fevereiro de 1978. Mas esta é a primeira vez que estou em palco. Sempre trabalhei na sombra. Agora que me podem ver pela primeira vez, certamente conseguem reparar como sou pálida. That was an excerpt of Sopru, a performance written and directed by Tiago Rodríguez, director and playwright of the Teatro Nacional Dona Maria Segunda in Lisbon, Portugal. As Tiago explained there, the performance explored themes of emptiness and memory, tying into our end of humanity exploration on this episode. Steering back to science now, our next participant, speaking to me from the Democratic Republic of Congo, can tell us something about one particular disease, often associated with the past, and how it continues to exist and pose some considerable threat. Anne Lodisois, a Belgian explorer and biologist, also goes on to imagine a world without human beings. So my name is Anne Lodisois, and I'm a biologist, an explorer, and also a disease ecologist. I work mostly in the Democratic Republic of the Congo on wildlife inventories, chimpanzee behavior and exploration, and neglected diseases mostly neglected vector-borne diseases. 
Okay, so tell us a little bit more about that, vector-borne diseases, and can you tell us maybe lead into some of the threats that they pose? But uh, yeah, first of all, tell us exactly what those types of diseases are. Yeah, so a vector-borne disease is a disease, an infectious disease transmitted by the mean of a vector, which can be a mosquito, it can be a tick, a flea, a lice, Usually, they are blood-sucking parasites that transmit a pathogenic agent from a host to another one, and mostly vertebrate, between vertebrate hosts. So they transfer from one vertebrate host and disease agent to another one. And um, you're going about trying to um, research those, find out what, where they, if they're still existing, what they're. Um, what they're up to, really. Can you tell me a little bit about where you're looking, what you're finding, kind of ins and outs of of your work? Yeah, so so in terms of vector-borne diseases, I've been working mostly on bubonic plague and onchocerciasis. Bubonic plague, most of the people think this is a disease of the Middle Ages, the Black Death is gone, but actually you have uh, quite a few plague cases every year in the U.S., but you have a lot of plague cases every year in Madagascar and in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And what uh, there is a major question remaining is why plague survived in the places where it's surviving now in the 21st century. And we just don't understand how it does that and why it's so focused on very small geographic areas. And so we are trying to, uh, I'm trying to identify vectors and, and hosts, like which rodents are carrying the plague, but also in which sites it uh, reemerges in the population, the rodent population, but also in humans, which is the consequence of the disease, right? It's like a spillover to human. And um, so far, we just don't understand how, how it survived for such long periods of time. So um, there's a certain amount of mystery, really. There's a lot of unknowns about the bubonic plague uh, you're talking about there. In your opinion, or from what you have seen, what do you think the risk is posed by a disease such as that? I mean, is there the danger that it could really emerge and, and, and really take people by surprise? Maybe not you, you you kind of know about it, but is there the risk there that it could be really a huge problem? Well, it clearly takes people by surprise when they don't expect it. Like if you are a hiker or a camper and you are in Colorado and you go camping and suddenly you wake up and you have a big bubble under your arm and you don't know what it is and it might be plague and you don't really expect that. In places where it's endemic and people are used to see it, they know it can happen. The major issue with plague is that once, if you don't treat it very um, in a timely matter, manner, then it may evolve towards a pneumonic form of the disease. And then through aerosols, it can be transmitted to um, very efficiently to people in the same room. And so most of the time you have uh, family clusters when you have a funeral, and then the person might have died of plague. But uh, once a person is infected uh, and it goes to the lungs, then it infects other people, just talking to each other. And so the major risk that we see here in DRC is, for example, those family clusters or, or delayed treatment, which leads to pneumonic plague. And you have also people moving to Uganda to seek treatment. 
and so with the risk of introducing plague in, in, in Uganda. And in, there, are, there has been some instances in the past where people in, who were you know, incubating the disease, so you don't have the symptoms yet, and they traveled, and it could have you know, lead, led to a, a, a real problem, like a big epidemic in a big city. The other thing with plague is probably linked to terrorism or bioterrorism, where there has been studies like about can you aerosolize plague and then you will have a massive plague outbreak and in the first instance nobody will know what it is because people wouldn't expect pneumonic plague, let's say in the middle of Paris. And uh, so that has been studied as well. So there is uh, not a real risk of like a pandemic like in the like in the Middle Age. First of all, also because we know how to recognize it, uh, we have treatment. This is basic antibiotics, so it's not like as scary as it was. But it could be uh, an issue if suddenly you have a massive uh, demand for those antibiotics and treatment for pneumonic plague. And if you don't treat it within 48 hours, there is a hundred percent mortality nearly. So it's quite serious. Yeah, it sounds sounds pretty serious. So um, there's that very high mortality rate and the issue of the contamination, the, the transmitting of the plague is just so uh, easy. I wanted to kind of change the subject a little bit and maybe talk about, we want to discuss a world in which there are no humans. Perhaps they have been uh, wiped out by a plague or, or, or a pandemic. And I wanted to imagine with you um, and perhaps with your experience in exploring some environments in the Democratic Republic of Congo that have really not been touched by humanity. And maybe can we kind of envisage some of these environments that have just continued to flourish and maybe are even even stronger and even better without our presence. What's your kind of first uh, impression of a world without humans? Well, I'd like to be the only human remaining so I can, you know, just contemplate that. <laughs> but it's a peaceful world that if you see it from our viewpoint, it's a peaceful world because it's flourishing if you speak about, let's say, a tropical lowland rainforest, it's full of vegetation, but it's contrary to what people think, there, are, there is not a lot of food, for example. People always think of tropical forest like it's full of uh, plenty of food, you just have to, you know, take a banana, take a, a papaya, but those have been introduced, so they are not common really in the forest, so you have to make do with what's there. And you probably, yeah, the people, most of them, the animals are eating leaves or relying on insects to survive. Um, and there is also some wars going on between, if I take the example of the chimpanzees, they also fight for territories and they kill each other. But they are also very peaceful if they have enough resources and so they live peacefully and yeah, rest most of the day and then eat the rest of the other rest of the day. Um, now we always maybe try to imagine the perspective of a big thing, a big animal that we can see. Uh, but if you are a bacterium or a virus there, it's also you are looking for another habitat. So they are also seeking a host. And so also animals die of viruses and, 
and it, this is the equilibrium, right? It's really uh, a peaceful equilibrium. If you don't, and if we don't uh, inter interact with them, there is still, I will say, the same kind of uh, wars and and, and uh, peace going on at different levels across the whole food chain. That was biologist, explorer, and also disease ecologist Anne Lodizois there imagining a world without humans. Anne ended on observing the food chain that can be found in any natural environment. Our next participant can maybe help us contextualise a broader food chain of sorts, at least that which occurs when a virus, something which is in itself hard to categorise, encounters human beings. Emanuele Coccia is an Italian philosopher who has lately focused his thinking on some of the symbioses between the material world and nature. In 2019, he authored a book entitled The Life of Plants. He gave me some very broad yet incisive takes on the pandemic that we have all witnessed. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me, first of all. Uh, I would say that uh, um so this pandemic is uh, is up if if it is observed, I mean in itself it's something which is extremely normal, trivial because it's like uh, the normal and uh, interaction between two species, uh, which has uh, always taken place like in the history of the of life and history of of uh, of, uh, uh, of the planet. It is perhaps, of course, perceived differently uh, uh, today because of a lot of uh, uh, reasons. Because, as you, since you mentioned that, because the question of the extinction of the species now has now become a sort of uh, central topic topic in the in the in the public, political, and philosophical reflection of uh, uh, the last. Uh, let's say, I would say, actually, on the last. Uh, uh, 60, 17 years, because we started uh, to speak about uh, extinction as a species uh, even before we uh, spoke about the ecological crisis. So it was a topic because of the the uh, uh, atomic bomb, first of all, that was the first uh, uh, moment where actually, at least in the history of uh, Western cultures, we try to figure again the possibility of uh, the extinction of humanity as a biological species. There is, there is just a book which, uh, which came out uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago by Thomas Moinian about this, uh, how, this, how did this idea of extinction came out, of extinction of uh, humanity as a biological species. It's not, uh, it's not it's a, a, a relatively recent uh, idea. Uh, the question is that this idea is not, or this representation, this kind of imagery is not, a, uh, how can I say, a scientific one, it's a, it's a theological one, because it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I mean, there is nothing, empir nothing empirical in this uh, frame, on this set of questions. We are just uh, wondering, in a way, through this question, which is the role of our species within the history of the planet, which is the role of our form within the history of uh, of life and so on. So there are questions which, in a way, have nothing to do with biology and nothing to do with uh, uh, politics, have nothing to do with uh, 
also with uh, medicines they are just a couple of they are just uh, uh, meaning questions or sense questions about uh, yeah what should be the place of human beings uh, within the universe from my point of view these kind of questions are silly questions or they are in a way uh, very badly formulated uh, theological idea or a very uh, naive form of theology uh, uh, because in a way uh, uh, humanity is not a subject in itself it's just one of the infinite forms that life can assume and from this point of view uh, the end of humanity is not uh, even uh, a question because uh, from a biological point of view or from a metaphysical point of view we should assume that we are uh, constantly changing and that we are assuming every day a new form uh, exactly like the planet so from this point of view uh, 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 there is no absolute beginning and there is no absolute end that was philosopher Emanuele Kocha and we'll hear more from him shortly Emanuele proposes that there is no absolute beginning and no absolute end however our next guest has gone about researching precisely that what might happen in the final stages of the universe we heard from theoretical astrophysicist Dr. Katie Mack on the last episode, and this time she told me a bit more about her 2020 book entitled The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. So the idea behind the book was to uh, put together the most common ways we talk about the end of the universe as physicists. So, you know, as physicists, we can look at the data and see what the cosmos is doing now, see how it's evolving, see how it's changed since the Big Bang. And there are only a few scenarios really that, that fit in with that in terms of what could happen in the future. And these are all ideas that we study, that we collect data to try to understand, things that, that we think might happen to our cosmos in the far future as it evolves away from its present state and, and into something else. Uh, and you know, each of these scenarios has a different kind of ending, but there there is an ending in the sense that everything that's in the universe now, all the structure, the galaxies and planets and, and uh, you know, particles and everything will be one way or another destroyed or, or changed beyond recognition, at least. Maybe something will come after, maybe not. That we don't know, but we do know that the universe now is changing in such a way that is it is becoming less and less habitable in, in some sense. And the, the most likely way that we think the universe can end, basically the thing that seems to fit the data pretty well and doesn't require any new ideas, new physics, is something called the heat death. And, and this is a, it's a very straightforward extrapolation from what we see in the universe now. So we know that in the past, the universe was more dense. The, the, space was smaller, basically. Galaxies were closer together. And the, in the Big Bang, everything was so dense that it was hot and plasma and there was, there was no structure, just this sort of hot, roiling, primordial fire. And over time, the universe has been expanding and cooling. Galaxies formed, stars formed. And in the sort of early billions of years of, of the cosmos, there were the things were closer together. There were a lot more interactions between galaxies. Galaxies would slam together more often and create more stars in that process. 
And over time, as the universe has expanded and cooled, that has been slowing down. So there are few, fewer stars being formed now because there are fewer interactions. Um, and the, the gas that stars are made of, the hydrogen gas, is, is you know, being slowly transformed into, hydro, into helium as, as stars burn. And, and uh, the gas in galaxies is getting used up. And what we see is that over time... Um, the galaxies are going to get farther and farther apart from each other on average. There's going to be more and more empty space. And as that process occurs, the, the rate of star formation is going down. So we can actually calculate right now that the, the rate of star formation has slowed so much that of all the stars that have ever been formed or ever will be formed, something like 90% of them have already come into being. So that means that now to the end of time is just just 10% of the stars in the universe are, are going to be formed, something like that, 5 or 10%. So you're saying so, that the universe is sort of entering advanced old age? Is it, is yeah. it kind of like a geriatric universe? Yeah, we're almost done. You know, <laughs> like, like the, everything that happens from here on out is kind of the last, the last gasp of the cosmos. Can I just say for our listeners, it's wonderful to watch you explain this because it sounded sort of like you've got a big smile on your face as, you, as you're explaining it. You're kind of saying, you're talking about the end of the universe with glee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to talk about, related to that, can we speculate on why there's this perpetual interest in the end of everything. We've spoken to um, philosophers, other thinkers, scientists, uh, disease researchers um, Mm. on this subject. It's nothing new. Obviously, 2020 has made everyone uh, Mm. that bit more conscious of of mortality, let's say, and and kind of the end of uh, a certain way of of doing things and the end of life itself. But within the context of of astrophysics and, and what you're researching, why do you think there's this kind of fascination in this? And why are you personally interested in this? What brought you to this topic? Yeah, so scientifically, I think the the interest is just in understanding the evolution of the cosmos, you know, understanding how the laws of physics govern, you know, the the evolution of structure in the universe, how those laws could change over time, um, what what will happen uh, to to all of the the things that exist now. I think there's a there's a sort of basic interest in that as physicists. And that's one of the things that makes me excited about this topic is is trying to use it to understand our universe better, understand our fundamental physical laws better uh, through the context of what happens over a very long period of time. Um, but I think as, as people, we're interested in this question because it's part of our story. You know, um, it's part of the narrative of existence. If you if you have a story, you can't have a story without an ending. You know, you have the beginning and the middle and the ending. We've we've studied the beginning a lot, and we're living through the middle. And now we want to know uh, what is the ending. That's that's part of trying to place ourselves in the cos in the context of greater existence of the cosmos. Uh, we need to know how we fit into this this picture and how we fit into the story and, and what's going to happen to us. It's, you know, we want to flip to the final page and, and see that's, that's just a basic impulse of humanity is wanting to understand the things around us, wanting to understand how we fit into this. Is there a meaning to it all and what's going to happen next? 
you know, that's, that's just basic curiosity for, for a human. Thank you to theoretical astrophysicist Katie Mack there for her insights into the end of the universe. From the enormity of the universe to the microscopic scale of something altogether smaller, a virus. Philosopher Emanuele Kocha now examines this enigmatic entity, part chemical, part living matter. It is this tiny thing that has recently so affected all of us on planet Earth. So the virus is uh, quite an interesting uh, entity because, uh, first of all, it's the evidence of the difficulty or the impossibility to trace, to draw a line between what is living and what is not living, because you cannot actually decide uh, uh, if it's just a form of chemical life, which is so complex uh, that it exceeds the normal chemical life of matter. So if it's just uh, a form of uh, really extremely active uh, piece of matter or on the contrary if it's a form of life who passed through a, a radical form of simplification uh, that he led that it that led uh, uh, it to uh, uh, in a way to uh, to assume a form which is analogous with with a with a form of existence of matter so you cannot uh, say if it's uh, 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 an exquisite form of chemical life, or it's the simplest form. Of, uh, it's the simplest form of living uh, uh, existence, and and that's interesting because it 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 proves that uh, this distinction is perhaps uh, a false one. Uh, secondly, and that we should perhaps uh, uh, quit, abandon this uh, position between what is living and what is not living. Uh, to be more, uh, in a way, to be more precise, we should perhaps uh, understand or uh, realize that our bodies uh, are the mineral are made out of the mineral uh, out of the mineral flesh of the planet. So we are actually Gaia that starts to be alive. So we there is no ontological or no real distinction between us and the mountains. We are made out of the same stuff, so it's uh, the 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 uh, there is no position. There is of course a distinction, but the distinction is really uh, a distinction of grade and not a, of nature. Secondly, a virus is interesting from a philosophical point of view because it's uh, it is also the evidence of the fact that uh, life has a power. I mean, admitted that. Uh, a virus is a form of life. Let's take in for granted that uh, it's uh, one of the forms of infinite forms of life. But uh, then you sh you s you see that uh, the power that uh, a living being possesses has nothing to do with its organization, has nothing to do with uh, its uh, uh, its size, has nothing to do also with its uh, complexity. So the tiniest form of life has a huge power in the in the in the case of uh, the, uh, the 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 pandemic, uh, 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 the COVID nineteen, you have the most elementary uh, and basic form of life, who obliged the the, mass, the technically most developed civilization in the history of the planet, in a way to uh, to uh, stop everything, which is <laughs> quite interesting in a way. That was philosopher Emanuele Kocha there examining the nature of a virus. 
Staying on this very theme, our next guest approaches the subject from a medical perspective. What do viruses do to the human body? How do they work? And what are the social as well as scientific considerations that we have to take into account when treating the diseases that viruses cause? I'll let Dr. Marta Bofito explain more. My name is Marta Bofito. I'm a consultant physician in a, a large hospital in London in the United Kingdom. And I uh, am an infectious diseases uh, doctor. I dedicated most of my life to HIV infection uh, and uh, to uh, research of its uh, treatments and uh, prevention. From a medical point of view, could you describe for us what a virus is? A very broad question, but perhaps in the case of this very topical virus that we're dealing with this year, COVID-19, can you tell us what that virus is and, and what it does to the body? So viruses are very small organisms that uh, have a little bit of a genomic a component, a little bit of a proteic component, so are made of few proteins, but need cells like human cells, animal cells, or even bacteria to replicate. So they couldn't live uh, independently from a more developed organism and uh, cells. And uh, the coronaviruses are viruses that uh, have been known for many, many years because they cause the common cold. But there are few coronaviruses that over the past 10 years have been shown to cause more serious diseases. And uh, the coronavirus 2 is one of these, and it is the uh, cause of COVID-19. The outcome of, of that virus, can you kind of outline some of the, the effects of how that virus attacks the body? So the coronavirus 2 um, enters cells from uh, humans and uh, mainly upper and lower respiratory tract cells and lung cells. And um, when it infects cells, uh, it's good for the virus because the virus can replicate. Um, and when it is inside the cells, it starts a reaction from the body, which is an immune system reaction. Our body is very intelligent and wants to defend itself from the virus. So it starts an immune system reaction. Unfortunately, however, that immune system reaction causes the damage to the lung, for example, to the upper or lower respiratory tract. And um, the majority of people that are affected by coronavirus too have a moderate to mild flu-like reaction because the body is able to properly regulate the response to this exogenous, to this organism that comes from the outside and attacks our cells. But unfortunately, there is a percentage of people 
whose immune system overreacts and leads to further reactions that leads to further damage of the lung or other organism that lead to the severe cases of COVID-19. Um, the other important aspect to know is that coronavirus 2 escapes the first reaction from the immune system because our immune system is very good at protecting us from many other viruses that are in the environment because we have an innate response. We learn to respond and to protect ourselves from infections when we're children, when we're babies, when we're children, when we are young adults and so on. But coronavirus too escapes this first response, enters the cells of our upper or lower uh, respiratory tract, of our lungs and other tissue cells, replicates itself. And that is when the immune system reaction starts. And again, it can be exaggerated and it can lead to damage to our tissues and our body. Talking about, uh, if we kind of shift our attention to another virus, one that you have dedicated decades of your career to uh, working with, researching and, and uh, trying to combat the HIV AIDS virus, very much linked to the immune system that you talked about uh, with coronavirus. But maybe can you tell us briefly about that virus and uh, its effects? Interestingly, the questions about coronavirus 2 and HIV um, has, is, has been asked very frequently because they're both viruses that affect, have affected society remarkably. So HIV has had so far the largest impact on humankind in recent times. Uh, it has killed 33 million people since the early 80s. And today, 38 million people live with HIV. And only two patients have been cured. So I think that the good news for coronavirus too is that it is not a chronic infection. As far as we know, uh, I think research... Um, is happening about uh, long COVID, but it's nothing compared HIV, which is a chronic disease because HIV produces DNA that enters human cells and persists into the human DNA forever. And it's not a curable disease. So it's a very, very different virus. But the reason why sometimes COVID-19 is compared to HIV infection, I think it's because of the large impact that they have on society. And really the comparison is what you're saying is, is a societal comparison. So and in many ways, uh, we were talking earlier and I mean, the stigma that still persists around people who are infected with HIV, it renders it completely incomparable to COVID. There's obviously very little stigma of people who contract COVID. It, there's a completely different social uh, background 
to these two viruses. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes, so the the difference that actually HIV and coronavirus 2 heads on society are very different because HIV is associated to a very important uh, stigma. Uh, this was uh, very much true uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, when governments tried to ignore HIV for a very long time. And that led to the development of incredibly uh, important and influential activism for the need of HIV treatments and led to the development of remarkable treatments for HIV infections. Uh, And this is because of the uh, way HIV is transmitted Uh, either because of uh, blood transmission or uh, sexual intercourse transmissions. Coronavirus 2 and COVID-19 have never um, had that stigma associated to it. And this is why people want to test for COVID-19 and want to know if they have it, want to uh, protect uh, other people from catching it if they have it. Uh, while for HIV, um, a lot of people are still not testing because stigma is still in our society. So it's still an uphill battle in many ways in terms of coping or dealing with the HIV virus. But maybe to conclude, and um, from your experience, from what you've seen this last year, could there be some positive implications from the pandemic in terms of other infectious diseases? Perhaps can you see an increased awareness? We're talking about this now, you and I, and perhaps we wouldn't have been having this conversation had it not been for the COVID-19 pandemic. Hopefully, there's more understanding on the part of the general public. And maybe could we see more empathy? Is that being too optimistic? or, Or would you agree with that statement? So I think that more awareness and more knowledge about viral infections and the importance of identifying them and uh, contain them and the importance of testing for viral infection, um, I think it's a very important point and it could be true that people become more knowledgeable. Um, The reason why it is very important to test for HIV is because if people with HIV are on antiretroviral drugs and have an undetectable viral load, they don't transmit HIV infection. And if everybody tests and everybody is diagnosed with HIV infection, we would treat everybody with HIV infection and we would stop transmission of HIV infection. So the COVID pandemic might have highlighted an increased knowledge in the community, in the population, about the importance of testing for viral infections. That's a very good point, and it's a very positive point. However, I still think that there is a stigma associated to HIV infection, and there is still work to do to make sure that the... um, HIV itself is not stigmatized any longer and people living with HIV or at risk of HIV don't face any uh, discrimination uh, in any areas of their life. But yes, I think that knowledge about testing 
viral infections, pandemics, is probably, hopefully, a step forward about fighting uh, transmissions of viral diseases. An enormous thank you to consultant physician and infectious diseases expert Marta Bofito for taking the time to so poignantly describe the physical and social impact of diseases caused by viruses such as HIV, AIDS and also the coronavirus. And perhaps we can point to some green shoots of optimism there. Perhaps one result of the tragedy that has been the COVID-19 pandemic is an increased awareness of the force of nature, as well as more empathy and understanding for those affected by viruses. To end, I wanted to know if we can frame this renewed sense of mortality from a philosophical standpoint. Back to where this episode began now with Ben Ware, the co-director of the Centre for Philosophy and the Visual Arts at King's College London. I asked him if facing our own mortality or extinction as a species might result in a new way of thinking, in a post-pandemic philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's an extremely important question. Um, and it's one that I'm I'm actually grappling with in in the book that I'm I'm writing at the moment on on philosophy, and extinction. Um, I think, you know, th- thinking about these things in in terms of the pandemic, and going back to the beginning of the crisis, I think, in spite of the anxiety generated by the virus, or maybe precisely because of the anxiety generated by the virus, there was an awful lot of new thinking taking place, Um, you know, desires to collaborate with others. You know, I I was struck by the sense that, you know, this wonderful kind of paradoxical effect of, you know, distancing, actually strengthening our links with others and allowing new forms of solidarity to emerge. There certainly seemed this moment in which real change had to happen um, and that some kind of reimagining of the social bond had to take place. But increasingly, and this is this is perhaps my pessimism, it seems that as capitalism begins to find its feet again, along with the economic and social devastation that's already beginning to result as a consequence of this crisis, there is this increasing desire for a a so-called return to normal. Um, And I think it's important that we think of this desire for a return to normal as a denial of death, in a way, a refusal to accept human vulnerability and finitude. Um, And I think this is, you know, this is incredibly problematic. I I mean, you know, we're now hearing on almost a, a daily basis about the way in which, you know, the rollout of the vaccine, which is obviously in one sense incredibly good news, but how this will enable us all to return to normal um, and that the world will be normal again by the end of next spring or, you know, what have you. Um, But here I think we need to be, you know, kind of absolutely clear, and this is something that I I kind of, a point that I, I make in the new book, that you know, normality in one sense is already the end of the world. 
um, you know, we might ask ourselves what was the normal before the arrival of the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, certainly in the UK, where I'm speaking from now, and in you know many other countries across the world, it was austerity, inequality, poverty, homelessness, racism, not to mention pollution, war, climate change, ecological destruction, the latter being the very things that contributed to the emergence of COVID itself. So normality is not some kind of happy state that we we should hope to kind of return to. And so perhaps, you know, a recognition of normality as a, already a kind of end of the world could kind of constitute a positive step, I think, in thought that could initiate the kinds of reflection that you were talking about. Thank you to philosopher Ben Ware for bringing us to the end of this episode of From the Moon, in which we have tried to imagine a world without humans, spoken about extinction, mortality and the end of quite literally everything. What may at first seem like quite a bleak, fatalistic and challenging theme has proved itself to be intensely thought-provoking. Many of our guests have concluded that it is only by trying to understand the very end can we begin to give meaning to anything at all. And this is a suitably philosophical way to wrap up this episode. Next time on From the Moon, we attempt to harness some of the creativity, innovation and optimism the world might have to offer. We will be looking at hope with the help of data designer Georgia Lupi, publisher Charmaine Lovegrove, curator Joseph Grima, and designer, researcher and writer Matthew Claudel. This episode was brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, and it was produced by the Triennale Milano team. Sound editing and design was by Alex Port Felix, and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama. Drama.